Welcome back to this eighth episode of the Made in Asia podcast. Made in Asia, the podcast about entrepreneurs and creators and the experience and transformation economies in Asia. Our guest today is Mark Keith, author of Pulling Back to Sheets, a manual for hotel owners and managers. Mark has had a long career of 40 years in the hospitality industry spanning Europe, Middle East, Africa, and Asia. Over his tenure, he's had opportunities to gain very unique insights into the inner workings of a hotel and realized that there are some hotels that work well very well and came to understand what the drivers for a hotel that excels are. In his book, he discusses about the opposite, about hotels that are broken, broken hotels. How do they come about and what is the impact on the people that work in them, stay in them and own them? I've known Mark for probably 15 years, so it's a great pleasure to welcome him to this episode today. Nice background, Birdie. All right. Ready? Yeah, oh, cool. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our episode uh, of the Made in Asia podcast about entrepreneurs and creators in the experience and transformation economies in Asia. Today, we were in wonderful Saikung, out here on the terrace of none other than Mark Keith. Um, Mark is an author, first-time author, uh, I would say an entrepreneur, mountain bike and two-wheel two enthusiast, and potentially one of the few hotel whisperers, if you ever met one. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, first time we shoot outdoors, actually, so apologies for any issues, background noise. You can hear the great outdoors of Saikung. It's just lovely. And, um, well, as I mentioned, Mark is a first-time author, and we have it right here. Pulling back the sheets. It's a tome, 700-odd pages, I think, so quite an accomplishment. What does it feel like being an author? Well, um, the first week after it was published, because it's it's a bit like completing a marathon. You take a, at least a week to recover. Um, there was a certain sense of it wasn't real. Mm. You know, I suppose if you climb Everest or something like that, you have a similar feeling. Um, yeah, and it was a bit a bit bewildering. To be honest, you know. Okay. And then the big step was when I got to see the baby when the books actually arrived. Okay. You know, How long did it take you for the whole till you had it in your hand physically from the, the first idea you had and from when you sat down as well properly writing? Three years. Wow. Okay. Yeah, from the first idea. But you took your time, I guess, right? Yeah. The first, I'd say the first year and a half was mainly, well, the first year was just putting the ideas down. Okay. And uh, I wasn't even sure if it was ever going to become a book, but okay. just didn't want to lose the ideas. Okay. So this is the hotel owner's manager and uh, and manager's operating and repair manual. I mean, that says very much, but what's really, what is it really about pulling back the sheets? Well, it's revealing why there are so many hotels that are, as I, I call it, broken. Hmm. And a broken hotel is a hotel that, either doesn't delight the customers and or the investors. Okay. And it also asserts that the investor is the is the primary customer that must be satisfied, you know. In any investment capitalist system, that's the primary customer. But so many hotels have, have not seen that or uh, not acknowledged that uh, the investor or the owner is the primary customer. 
so over the span of your career, which has been in Africa and Europe and in Asia, I guess you've seen one or two broken hotels to be able to write 700 pages or... Yeah, one or two. One or two, yeah. Yes. Out, of, out of three or out of... Uh, <laughs> It's easier to identify the ones that were really working on all fronts. Okay. Yeah. And they're, they're a handful. You know, a hotel that's working in every aspect is quite an achievement. Over a long period, right? Yeah. I mean, they have, sometimes they have their high times, yeah. but then it yeah. ebbs away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the reasons why it ebbs away and why their high times are in the book. Okay. And so what's the actual writing like i mean you said when you're done it feels like a marathon oh, but it's uh, lonely it's lonely <laughs> yes um, you have all your family support and everything and they get fed up with hearing your latest uh, <laughs> oh i just wrote a fabulous section oh you got to read got to hear this oh god again. <laughs> yeah. um so it is lonely and then towards the end this was my experience towards the end you suddenly discover your new best friend for life which is your editor mm And I had a great editor, Wendy Ellis, and uh, never met Wendy. She lives in Athens, and she was my coach, my my cheerleader, and my editor. How did you find uh, online? You know how okay. you find anyone. Um, book editors have their version of Tinder, okay. and uh, you go out there and <laughs> make you, a match. And, yeah. Okay, <laughs> happy swiping. So. <laughs> When you when you first set out to write a book, I mean, were you were looking f normally to get published by somebody? Was that uh, your first uh, step, or where, where where did you start? I mean, certainly some people have an idea of writing a book, right? So, and seven hundred pages is is uh, ambitious for a first one. But uh, where did you start? I mean, what? How did you actually go about it? Well, if we stick with the Tinder metaphor, um, you get a lot of rejection, hmm. and. Um, The biggest is that from personal experience that you can say what happens on Tinder or no no I've no. never I've never in fact I think I said it in the book um, before Tinder we had the hotel industry which was responsible for most of us getting our dates yeah you know um, but um, you go to a you you know you've got a few chapters written you think you could show an, a publisher something that would get their juice running and they don't want to know hmm. I mean it's a horrible You oh. get any response or just pure rejection silence? I got one or two, you know, standard responses, but most was just silence. I okay. Mean, you, you And have. you send in a manuscript or a sort of idea, a draft, like an outline, or the big the big firms have a sort of process that you a template that you mm. follow, and you follow the template. It's like sending in CVs to a job. Oh uh, no, it's worse. Okay. It's okay. much worse. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to write in a certain way. It's almost like you're doing a. Um, you know, a dissertation or a thesis, you've got to fit it into their template and then you get no feedback. Mm. And, um, or then they say, oh, that's interesting. We're probably not going to do, be doing nonfiction. You go, well, uh, what stage did you not know that my book about fixing hotels was nonfiction? Um, so you get these rejections and you always find it's pr pretty disheartening because mm. it's not disheartening because you get rejected, but you can't find a way forward And it is a bit like probably your first job out of hotel school where you've got to go to lots of interviews. Mm. And if you're smart, you do that. So you get the practice. But you know sooner or later or you get some offers that you don't, you don't want. But with publishing a book, you don't even get offers. You, you, and you don't, find, you don't say, oh, it's a numbers game. If I keep going, if I persevere, I'll get there. And um, that's when I realized I was going to use uh, Amazon, okay. which uh, 
has revolutionized uh, publishing for many authors, I'm sure, would never be published, never been published if it hadn't been for Amazon. Okay, so it's available on Amazon, I guess. Is yeah, it's, it's got an ISBN code, everything? As an ebook and yeah. as, a, as a printed version. Okay, we'll have a link in the video below and on the blog. So if you want to find uh, Pulling Back the Sheets, check that out. Uh, how much would we have to fork out for a copy? Hmm. That's a great question. Bitcoins Dan. or uh, what, what's it? It's a great question. I, I could give you the price by the page because it's quite cheap okay. when you do it. <laughs> okay. It's around 60, 65 US, I think. Okay. Same uh, for the ebook and No, I think copy? the ebook is slightly cheaper. Okay. Yeah. So more sustainable too. So uh, yeah, check it out on Amazon. Um, now, broken hotels, obviously, uh, in your career, you've encountered, as you said, two or three. Where, at what point did you have? the skills or where did you develop the skills to have the insights you had? Mm. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have the skills. Um, you know, the broken hotel stereotypical scenario is the owner realizes the hotel's not making the returns he was expecting or was promised and uh, he finds a scapegoat and uh, we call those people general managers and uh, he says, I'll change the general manager. That will sort things out. So he gets a new general manager. And that general manager is great for about three months, honeymoon period. And then the results don't dramatically change generally. And so the poor owner says, I better change another general manager. And well, there's hotels that have had four or five within a couple of years, yep. some even more. Um, because the general manager, and this was the the breakthrough for me, I was in the business of finding those general managers and, mm. and priding myself on selecting those who could get the breakthroughs commercially for the hotel. And even though they had a track record of doing that, when they were put into the new sandpit of this broken hotel, they also fell on their face. Mm. So that was the breakthrough, seeing that the scenario or the context in which they were operating was broken, hmm. not necessarily the general manager. And the broken context of the broken hotel was not even in the consciousness of, of the management company, the general manager, nor the owner. Right. Uh, it was a combination of many factors. But and it, not the hardware so much. I mean, oh, that's the last yeah, part of it, right? Really. And many great hotels have horrible hardware. Hmm. Uh, we, we know those. And there's one obvious, obvious example in the book of that. Okay, so in terms of your career, you started out uh, notoriously at the night audit, is that correct? No, um, <laughs> I was working on a reception desk in London, big hotel, 700 rooms, the Mount Royal Hotel, which I think is still there, maybe differently branded now, but um, on Oxford Street. And um, the night manager had a, a small problem and general manager asked me to be the night manager. Oh, night manager. Okay. Yeah. Not audit. Okay. And <clears throat> I was very young and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, I didn't have the habitual problems that mm. some of the predecessors had. So um, that was when I, yeah, that was my first real... Uh, Hospitality exposure. Yeah, in a, in a leadership role. Yeah. And you clipped on then to a corporate role or you did some pre-openings around Africa? Pre-openings so. and... Uh, and yeah, then joined Hilton in a in a corp well, in a in a hotel operation in Iran, and then uh, an opening in Lesotho, and then uh, a corporate role in Switzerland. Okay, 
And how, so you have seen obviously many different countries. How is the local culture impacting the hotel culture? Is that, um, if a, is a broken hotel broken no matter where it is in the world or can it be, you know, does it depend also on the local context? It's mm, a great question. Um, the local context and the local culture has a huge impact on the hotel. Um, and there was a question asked at one of the investment conferences a few years ago um, about where is the best service in Asia Pacific? And um, Bill Butler, a friend of mine, answered the question. I think I was on the panel and Bill was in the audience. And I said, Bill, where would you say? And he said, I would say Japan and Thailand. And the previous question had been about um, we can't provide great service because our staff don't speak English. Mm. And so we did a show of hands in the audience and uh, everyone agreed that best service was in Japan and Thailand. And, uh, you know, we all sort of knowingly nod, nodded wisely, yes, because the cultures are naturally hospitable and, uh, you know, they lend themselves to being warm and tender-hearted and welcoming. And then Bill, who's a, amongst other things, a language expert, he said... Um, What's interesting is that those two countries have probably the worst English um, in Asia, mm. or certainly not as accomplished as Singapore, Hong Kong, or elsewhere, Malaysia. And that was a little jolt for mm. the audience. And for me, I, I said, wow, that's quite interesting. So the culture has a big part to play, but the hotel is an entirely different social construct. So the staff in a hotel might be going through culture shock every day when they leave their family home and all the cultures, cultural norms of that and get on sometimes a horrible commute to arrive at their hotel and become this multicultural, sensitive, um, empathetic, caring individual, which may not be natural to their normal ways of operating mm. and certainly not confident and uh, enrolling that they ha need to be in their jobs. So every hotel is a, is a microcosm. And often that microcosm is totally at odds with the culture that is the natural default in its location. Interesting though, you mentioned Thailand and Japan. So both have different, very different ways to deliver on that mm. excellence hospitality, right? One culture is probably more, well, we were in Korea together a couple of times where yes. things are more structured. Yes. And Japan is probably more uh, sort of, Uh, by coats and, and sort of uh, behavioral norms. And in Thailand, is a, maybe it's also a behavioral norm, but it uh, expresses very different, no? Yes, yes. Um, Japan's interesting. I was there the first time before um, GPS was widely used. And the taxi drivers, for anyone who was in Tokyo in those days, will remember that the taxi drivers were immaculately dressed and they, they wore white gloves. White gloves, yeah, and a hat, yeah. And um, they would pick you up from your hotel and you'd give them the address written in Japanese by the concierge and they'd look at it and they'd maybe the bellman would also talk to them and make sure they understood where they were going and they would nod and enthusiastically and very politely take off into the Tokyo traffic and half an hour later they were clearly hopelessly lost <laughs> and you'd miss the appointment you were late for your meeting you know it must have cost you dollars or something but somehow the disposition of this taxi driver you ended up tipping them And they dropped you somewhere where you could ask directions. You were nowhere near where you wanted to be, but you weren't upset with them. They had a, a way of being that just made you want to be kind and caring. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And it wasn't just my experience. A lot of people you know, yeah. reported that. That has changed a lot lately as well, right? Well, got GPS. In Japan. Yeah, GPS too. <laughs> yeah, that uh, I use that occasionally. And GPS, yeah, we come across that. Um, so the... You said the skills in the book you never really developed, but you had sort of increasing evidence that something is afoot in the industry, right? Yeah. Um, you ride two-wheel motorcycles, and uh, I know you go on the racetrack. Now, I don't know, because I haven't been on the racetrack, and I haven't been on the racetrack with you, to what extent you're getting around that racetrack safely and fast because of your natural talents and instincts and your or to what extent are you consciously applying some well-proven scientific techniques mm. and i think that's true of many fields you know you get somebody who's naturally gifted in something and um so i was not aware of what hotels not what i was doing but what hotels were doing right until quite late in my career mm. and it was It was back to the cultural clashes within Asia that I suddenly realized this hotel is a social construct and the culture within that hotel will either be workable in order to deliver warm, welcoming hospitality and a commercial result mm. or it will be against that outcome yep. without knowing it. And that latter, the, the broken hotel which has a culture which is against the fulfillment of customer delight and thereby commercial success mm. is prevalent. And it's a blind spot for the hotel owner, for the hotel management company, and for the hotel general manager. Management companies are all the rage in Asia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have the biggest names here. Are um, how, how much is this issue of broken hotels on their radar? Are there in general better at avoiding broken hotels or uh, or do they proactively manage towards uh, fixing hotels? Wow. Without getting into any trouble, obviously this question. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a great question because um, I think you've got management companies who've got, I mean, it comes down to people. There's a management company that has, say, a really smart senior leader in the region and they have built rapport with their owners with their investors in the region and they've also got the sensitivity and the uh, the diplomacy to be the buffer between their management company which might be on the other side of the planet mm. and they're dealing with people there who wouldn't even know be able to find the location on the map yep. who are telling them how they should be dealing with these things and that management company senior executive in the region is filtering that providing a cushion between that and the reality and uh, almost like um, a signal box passing those signals through in a way that the other party can understand them and that's definitely the key to, the, to that question if okay. they've got that kind of person the problem is that many of those management companies um, want to have someone on the other side of the planet that they that they trust and so they hire someone who fits in with their culture rather than who will adapt their culture and help it to fit into the mm. local community and that's unconscious okay um we had an example you might remember 
uh, down in HVS where HVS was hiring somebody. And that person flew into the headquarters. And I said to the people he was going to interview with, um, don't judge him as if he's going to work in New York because he wouldn't work there. Mm. And by preparing them for the environment that that person, person was going to work in, they they wouldn't have hired him actually because you know he wasn't in any way like an American yeah. would be in an interview. And uh, they hired him and it worked out. Okay. And so it's hiring for the environment where the person's going to work rather than hiring for... Um, yeah, synchronization with the with the parent company culture. Okay. For full disclosure, uh, Mark and I were colleagues for I've known you for fifteen years or more. So, so we yes. worked together in uh, many environments. Uh, we and played together as and well. Played together indeed. <laughs> Road uh, and the mountains of Saikung. We uh, were downhill mountain biking once, once or twice. Yes. Uh, with very little of success on my behalf, so uh, I did the forward flip down the down and, the hill. And Dan also took me motorcycling <laughs> in Delhi on two Royal Enfield motorcycles, which uh, was actually as about as dangerous as downhill mountain biking. Cycle. <laughs> well, once we saw the tank on a flatbed, I think our appetite <laughs> changed a little bit in the central uh, uh, Delhi traffic. Um, interesting, <laughs> interesting times uh, traveling and. Korea and all over the place. But um, yeah, so I met you about 15 years ago, first time you were in the New York office. Yeah. And uh, you were, maybe you were starting with HVS back then, but um, your career moved on obviously afterwards. Uh, and most recently you worked with uh, a regional hotel company, right? An owner. Yes, yes. Um, you did executive search before? Yeah. Uh, so finding uh, talent at senior leadership levels. Is that a skill that sort of applies? I mean, it sort of is a very fluid, the skills you apply or or um, you need to hone for each role, kind of re redefine and sort of reject all your senses. Um, you know, when you're finding people these days, is not difficult. It's a bit back to the GPS in Tokyo taxi drivers. You know, 20 years ago without LinkedIn, it wasn't easy to find people and keep mm. track of them. And that was a, a great advantage HVS had. Um, but these days, finding people's easy. But it's like gluing two surfaces together. You, you only get a good adhesion mm. if the surfaces are prepared to be glued together. Okay. And uh, you can almost glue any surface, and I'm talking now in terms of finding people, as long as the preparation of both sides is done. Okay. Um, And there's no surprises. They will glue together. So I think the skills that you're referring to, um, I got not so much from finding people or persuading or enrolling or enticing them to make a career change, which, by the way, is is the biggest, almost the biggest decision you could make in mm. life, you know, next to who you're going to marry. Um, you know, where you're going to work and, and invest some time that can never be recovered has got to be the most important decision anyone ever makes. Yep that two years could be wasted or could enrich you. Um, so that's a big, that's a big skill set, finding a way to make that work. And we always used an expression, you want something that goes naturally rather mm -hmm. than pushing a wheelbarrow full of sand up a hill. If you're trying to persuade somebody and it feels difficult, then it, it's, it's not right, it's not working. Um, 
But the real skill was finding out why the previous, if the previous person hadn't worked out, why they hadn't worked out mm. and fixing that. That was the preparation of the ground before bringing in the new person. And because we did a 12-month guarantee, there was a, a kind of unwritten or unspoken acknowledgement that we were going to coach them through the first 12 months because it was a better investment to provide some regular checking in and counseling, sometimes coaching, yeah. than having to go back and find a replacement because you'd left them alone. And that coaching doesn't often come from within the company. Maybe it cannot always come from the company because they wouldn't share as openly as they would with a, with a third party. And mm. that, that is representing a lot of what was in the book. Okay. Um, and so the great leaders you mentioned uh, that helped sort of the transcontinental or intercontinental exchange, uh, what kind of a background or, you know, what, uh, why are they so good at what they're doing? I mean, is, does it come in all shapes and colors or do you see some commonalities where people have developed the skills over their career? Yeah, um, that is the holy grail of, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I think it, it probably transcends all, all walks of life and all, all professions. Hmm. Um, people who can get those around them, including those they have no direct authority or power over, to buy into their strategy or their plan and support their plan and go the extra mile in helping them to make their plan come to life. Right. That seems to be the, uh, that seems to be the common denominator, hmm. whether it's, You know, the um, in the military world, um, uh, that is now acknowledged as one of the key skills mm. of leadership. And in the hotel industry, that's always been the case. And it's for any type of leadership probably, right? doesn't yeah. matter the industry. It's yeah. just that in hospitality, probably the if you're a poor manager or a poor leader, the effects go through the organism, the social contract is broken, and... The hotel itself is broken, right? I mean, that's the more, uh, it's more visual or more more apparent, I guess, yeah. when you have poor leadership. Yeah, and the passive-aggressive sabotage, which is often happening unconsciously as well mm. by the customer contact staff who have just had a bad experience with their boss. And so they delight in telling a customer, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, that's our policy. I would love to help you, but I'm afraid my hands are tied. <laughs> and they've got joy on their face as they reject this request from the customer yeah it's payback yeah and uh last question as you point out on the hotel is have you taken anything from the minibar right so <laughs> it's a great um the alleged theft uh, that goes with the farewell yeah i i mean it's just such a stupid question isn't it it's, it's got to be the most so so <laughs> sops were obviously a big driver of this standard operating procedures are they the ultimate evil of hotel broken hotel keeping or do they serve a purpose to a point or because as we've encountered with some cultures um it's that's the gold standard as a sop right? yeah every every famous general claims to have said the um the first casualty of any battle is always the plan yeah or as mike tyson said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the <laughs> face right <laughs> exactly yeah um the uh The, the SOP is the plan, mm. uh, but sticking to the SOP is like the general sticking to the plan right. in, in the face of, uh, you know, um, of a failure, of defeat. Um, so hiring people 
in key positions who can think on their feet, creating an environment where they're not going to get, uh, you know, scapegoated when they make a mistake. It's okay to make a mistake and learn from it. Mm. And, uh, and that's particularly difficult in coming back to your question on, on national cultures. Some national cultures do not tolerate mistakes very well. And people are fearful, mm. naturally. They're hierarchical cultures and they're fearful of that. So that's my point in creating a social construct that might be at odds with the national culture. So you go to work in the hotel and in the hotel you're working in a place where mistakes are a natural part of being human and that you're going to invent things to satisfy customers and you're going to have the freedom to do that and you're going to have the skills and the, the knowledge to do that and the support. Mm. And... You know, instead of saying, no, that's our SOP, saying, give me five minutes. Where will you be? I'll come and find you in five minutes. I just need to see what I can do about this. Now, that's a great response rather than, sorry, sir, that's our policy. My hands are tied. Yeah, the extra mile as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. This is the end of the first part of our eighth episode with Mark Heath, author of Pulling Back to Sheets. Book is available on Amazon. You can find us made in asia the podcast at made-in.asia we're also on youtube and you can follow us on our instagram made in asia the podcast stay tuned for part two